Great Plains prairies are struggling to survive, in part because of trees. And then there's different brushes too. Cerecia lespediza is the one that drives us in the Flint Hills absolutely crazy. It should be right up with heroin and cocaine. You shouldn't be able to get it. <laughs> Hear more on the podcast Up From Dust. Up to Date wants to know what you're talking about with family and friends. You can text UTD to 816-601-4777 to tell us. Again, 816-601-4777. It's been one year since Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. But for many Ukrainians, including those who call Kansas City home and have for decades, the war didn't start just one year ago. It started back in 2014 when Russia invaded and then annexed Crimea. Stand with Ukraine KC is a local nonprofit formed one year ago by the Ukrainian Club of Kansas City. The organization helps Ukrainians relocating to our area. It also partners with NGOs back in Ukraine to provide tens of thousands of dollars in aid to refugees in that war zone. This weekend, Stand with Ukraine KC is hosting several events to commemorate 300 165 days of Ukrainian resistance. With us, Volodymyr Poloshuk is the president of Stand with Ukraine KC. Volodymyr, nice to have you. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you Andrew Myers, me. the organization's program director. Andrew, good to have you too. Good morning, Steve. Thanks. I'm wondering, you know, what the two of you are thinking these days, one year since Russia invaded Ukraine. The war appears to be at a standstill. What's going through your mind these days as it pertains to Ukraine? Volodymyr, what, what, what are you seeing? Well, I think the war is really not at a standstill. It might appear to a general public that it is because a lot of the news cycles have rotated out of the public circulation, but there's the war is still very active. I mean, it's a kind of moved on to the eastern side of the country, and uh, uh, there's there's daily reports of how, you know, Ukraine is right now is basically kind of defending its, uh, its, state, it's defending its positions, Right, so Russia is like you know throwing all of the, all of the forces that it can it can muster at the Ukrainian uh, the military, and basically that's that's what that's what things are taking place, right? And there's some talk that Ukraine might go on the offensive sometime soon. That is that is uh, that is in a discussion, right? Obviously, we're not a military expert, yeah. so we can't really speak to that. But yes, that is ho- that. Hopefully, you know that's going to happen. You know, as soon as the weather gets better. Andrew, do you see this war as something at a standstill or not? Um, well, no, it's 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 very much a hot crisis. Uh, you know, I lived there for four years uh, from 2015 to 19, where it, it did feel like more of kind of a maybe a lukewarm or frozen conflict. Uh, but but it's it's very much hot now. Um, you know, I think on the one hand, we're all very proud of what Ukraine has done in terms of uh, resisting the invasion and, and beating back the Russians in a lot of parts. But uh, we're also very um, apprehensive about what's what's coming next. Everybody's anticipating another full-scale um, offensive on the Russian side. Obviously, the, uh, the Ukrainians are much more well-equipped uh, to handle that this time around. But um, you know, uh, Putin will not accept uh, defeat, uh, and that's a very scary proposition, especially considering that they're a nuclear power. Well, I was going to say, Andrew, you're taking my next question uh, for me here. Lots of concerns that nuclear weapons might wind up deciding this conflict. What do you think? Well, um, I, you know, if you would have asked me this a, a couple of years ago, I would have said no way, no chance in hell. But, um, you know, I also said that, you know, this full scale invasion wouldn't ever happen. You know, the people that are closest to Russia and Ukraine were the ones that were absolutely certain that there's no way Putin would, you know, invade an entire country of 45 million people, heavily armed, well-trained, 
Um, and obviously that happened and we were all pretty astonished all, all the way up to, um, you know, President Zelensky. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, unfortunately, everything is on the table. Uh, and again, um, it's a very scary proposition that, that he would not accept defeat. And he always has that in his back pocket. Um, so it's something we have to take very seriously. How concerned are you, Volodymyr? I'm very concerned. Like Andrew mentioned, a couple of years ago, it would not be it would not be thinkable that this something like this could happen. But, you know, given backed in the corner, I mean, any, anything, everything is on the table. And unfortunately, that is that is a real risk. You know, Volodymyr, we just had a University of Chicago political scientist on the show just the other day, John Mearsheimer, who said that the United States and its European allies, you know, they deserve a lot of blame for the unfolding crisis in Ukraine because those countries kept pushing for expansion of NATO, a move that Russia believes is something of an existential threat to its survival. What do you make of that theory? I think it's uh, really unsubstantiated because uh, NATO is a security alliance, right? It's just like buying a security uh, alarm system for your house, right? It doesn't mean, or buying a weaponry to protect yourself, right? It doesn't mean you're going to go invade your neighbors or your neighborhood, right? So when you enter a security alliance, basically all you do is just get the, get the protection or guarantees of protection from your uh, allegiance members. And that's all that is, right? But Putin feels like uh, his, his near, nearby neighbors are massing against him, I guess would be the thinking. Well, I think in the history of NATO, there hasn't been a case where European country invaded another one after, you know, just because they joined after after they joined the NATO, right? So yeah. that's that thing that's Putin's excuse to invade Ukraine, and it's a, it's a false pretenses. Well, Andrew, let's localize this conversation just a little, a little bit here. What's the Ukrainian community like in Kansas City? How big is it? You know, honestly, I don't have a really, I don't have any good numbers. Uh, you know, we we have you know perhaps up to a thousand people within our network. Um, that number has grown, you know, partly because people have, you know, come together more over the last year and then partly because we have had this influx of, of refugees as part of Biden's uh, Uniting for Ukraine program. So I don't have any concrete numbers, um, but uh, they've certainly become a lot more active in the last year. Uh, you know, we had this Ukrainian club of Kansas City, which was largely, you know, a Facebook group and occasionally we would get together for holidays and other special occasions. Um, but now we've kind of mobilized resources. We've formed this nonprofit stand with Ukraine KC, which has, you know, 501c3 status. And we're actually, you know, conducting programming in Ukraine and, and locally as much as we can. So we've become a lot more organized. Volodymyr, how did this nonprofit get started? Well, I think, uh, well, the, the original uh, cause for nonprofit, it was right after escalation, a lot of people in Kansas City, uh, they were wanting to help, right? Kansas City is a very, very vibrant community of different cultures, and it's, it's a very heartfelt community as well. So once they see the crisis, people reached out to everybody they know. And like Andrew mentioned, uh, there's, a, there's quite a bit of, there's a, the Ukrainian community is quite large, but comparatively to the size of Kansas City, it's very small. Mm -hmm. So somebody knew somebody and they were trying to reach out. How do we, how do we help? How do we do, donate money? Do we just send it to Red Cross or any other big nonprofit organizations? And uh, a lot of people didn't know, you know, wh what's the best way, right? So uh, all of us were members of Ukrainian Club of Kansas City and we decided that we needed some very, very organized effort to kind of help Ukraine in the, in, in the most dire, uh, in the most dire circumstances, right? And that's how the, the idea behind nonprofit started. And you've done that, and you've done a lot of things since you formed this nonprofit. What kinds of things have you done? Well, that's an excellent question. We've done many things. So we uh, we've organized several rallies. We partner up with uh, several other nonprofits in Kansas City, heart to heart. Uh, 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 being one of them, you know, there's a uh, Jewish vocational services, uh, Christian 
uh, Catholic Service of Kansas, uh, the Dalla Lamb, right? So we organized, uh, we created a, a helpful guide for Ukrainian refugees as they land in Kansas City. I mean, mind you, that a lot of people from Ukraine, they have really not acclimated to uh, European or your American style of living, right? So a lot of those things that we, when they, once they land in Kansas City, there's they really don't know what to expect, right? They've never yeah. driven a car. They've never really filled up a car with gas. They don't know how the taxation or medical system work, I mean, which is very complex in the United States. So we put together a helpful guide that which is available through our website that we kind of distributed all throughout. Well, we uh, we have several six uh, vetted out uh, NGO partners in Ukraine, so we collected donations and provided the immediate uh, financial help through through our micro grant programs. So we created micro grant programs, which is Andrew in charge of, which basically kind of. It's it's a program that designed to provide immediate need, right? So and I'll be to help the refugees from Ukraine who are here to 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 help the IDPs and internal displaced people in Ukraine, right? So, unfortunately, the way that you know a lot of crisis crisis management works, I mean, people you know they donate money to big NGOs and then they really you know they they buy a lot of the you know humanitarian aid and basically they ship it to. Uh, places where that are still safe. And then local NGOs, they have to go drive across the border or somewhere else to kind of go obtain that humanitarian aid and then drive it back to the front lines. Mm -hmm. uh, in our case, we work directly with the NGOs that are at the front lines, right? So we just basically, we transfer funds and they obtain, you know, whatever needs are necessary because needs change all the time, right? So because we are in a landlocked like landlocked state, you know, to ship the equipment, ship the humanitarian aid from Kansas City is very expensive and it's very timely, right? So yeah. By the time we send something to Ukraine, it gets there like, you know, months later, the needs on the ground have changed. Right? So so your goal is to ship them money to the front lines to let them make decisions in real time that what they correct. need. Yeah, that is yeah. correct. Andrew, just to be crystal clear here, you're helping on two fronts. You're helping with the refugees from Ukraine coming to Kansas City. And as uh, Volodymyr just pointed out, you're helping with uh, the, the war going on in Ukraine right now. Am I seeing that correctly? Yeah, that's right. I mean, those are our two main program streams. Um, you know, obviously, our the most urgent thing when we first formed in, you know, April May was to get some funds over to partners that we knew working on the ground. Um, I actually come out of, uh, you know, a humanitarian aid background along with my wife, and so we immediately, you know, hooked up with partners that we already knew and trusted on the ground and got some grants over to them uh, to help deliver, uh, you know, aid and, and meet basic needs for people that have been displaced suddenly by this conflict. Uh, and then right here at home, um, you know, we're doing what we can. We had a nice, uh, just recently on the top, off the top of my head, we had a nice, um, uh, you know, holiday celebration for refugee families. We called it First Christmas in KC and, you know, delivered gifts to children uh, as well as, uh, you know, Visa gift cards uh, for families to purchase, you know, whatever they needed for their holiday celebration. Um, you know, it's, it's a... It's a I, how many Ukrainians do we have in Kansas City, just roughly? What, what would be your guess? I mean, boy, Volodymyr, you might have a better guess than me. I don't, I've never really had that number. Do you well, have any sense? I think the number changes drastically as, a, as a, the, the war you know, keeps happening mm -hmm. in Ukraine. I think there are more families arriving. The last number we had, there was, a, there was over 100 families that recently arrived to Kansas City. Just uh, more than 100. Families. Mm -hmm. Families. So families could be, you know, keep in mind that a lot of the families that come here, they they're, they have multiple kids. So sure. it's like, you know, three, four, you know, multi, multiple kids, families. And uh, and there's probably more than, than 100 in Kansas, right? So when you combine, that's a, that's a big number. One thing I want to point out when it comes to Ukrainian community, it's not about just the, the people that recently arrived from Ukraine, but it's also... 
you know, the people that are descendants of Ukraine, right? So we have multiple family, multiple members that are, you know, they're American by their second generation or third mm-hmm. generation American, but they still have Ukrainian heritage of some type. Is Kansas City and its surrounding communities, are we able to accommodate these families? Are they finding housing? What's, what's your sense of how that's rolling out? It's. I think it's going really well. Again, we 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 there's a, there's a several you know uh, uh, several other NGOs that like you know the the nonprofits are working here you know, that kind of providing that help. Like I said, yeah. I mentioned several of them already. But uh, yes, I think there's a, there's several programs to kind of help people to get to get on on track. But uh, what they need now is maybe that it kind of goes a little bit beyond the, the humanitarian help that they're receiving, right? So they're still trying to acclimate themselves to the Kansas City area. So they're trying to find jobs, you know, English programs and, and things of that nature that really, you know, we, that's what uh, that's one of the things we're trying to partner up with other people that kind of provide those those type of services that may not be available, you know, everywhere. If people listening want to help, um, I'm going to mention a couple of events you have coming up this weekend, mm-hmm. but how can they help just broadly speaking? Well, they can visit our website, ukrainekc.org. That's our official website, and we have a social media when stands with Ukraine KC. That's the name of our uh, Facebook page, so mm-hmm. they can send us a message if they have, you know, they want to provide assistance, they want to volunteer, or you know, we'll we'll, we'll organize, you know, drive like you know, we'll fundraisers. There's a volunteering opportunities. We like recently we we, we did a you know, partnership with the. Uh, Heart of Heart organization to kind of put together hygiene kits that were shipped to Ukraine, you know, mm-hmm. after the fact. So there's multiple ways we can help, more than one, right? So they can just, you know, kind of follow our, you know, reach out to us. And if they have any ideas or, you know, you're going to want to reach out to ask, you know, how could they help? I'm more than happy to, you know, provide the Ukrainekc.org is the website that you're is saying. Correct. Okay. Yep. Let me just point out that uh, we're talking about uh, a group in Kansas City, Stand With Ukraine Can- KC. We have two representatives from that group. I want to point out they have two events coming up this weekend. And uh, on Friday, there'll be a benefit for Stand With Ukraine KC. There's a reception at 5 p.m. and a panel at 6 at the World War I Museum. And then on Saturday at 4 o'clock, there's going to be a rally by the fountain at the entrance to the Country Club Plaza. That's at, again, at 4 p.m. Saturday at the fountain there. We'll be back in just a minute. Andrew, you said you spent, uh, what, six years working in conflict zones in Ukraine. Tell us about your experience there and what you think is going on on the ground right now. Yeah, sure. I was um, I, I was a Peace Corps volunteer first in Crimea, uh, you know, obviously, which was which kind of started things off. Uh, but that was from 2007, 2009. So prior to the war. Uh, and then after the war started, I, I, I moved back uh, and uh, took a couple of uh, aid jobs uh, in the Donbass and in, in the Donetsk region in the east with a, in the war zone. And, um, you know, my my impression of, of being in that region, you know, I coming from the United States and being sort of a pro-Ukrainian person, uh, you know, I came in with one sort of set of views on the on the, the, the revolution in Kiev and the war itself. And, um, you know, it was fascinating to kind of interact with a lot of people. Uh, including who uh, the woman I eventually married, uh, who were um, you know reloc- relocated from Donetsk as a result of the war. These are people who lost their homes and lost their livelihoods, jobs. Um, you know, and all of a sudden we're thrown in these kind of uncertain situations. Uh, and you know, they had different perspectives on the war. You know, all the way up to you know people who didn't necessarily agree with the you know Maidan revolution in Kiev. And it was kind of eye-opening for me. Um, I think those perceptions have changed significantly over the last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, now, now that Putin has really kind of shown his true colors, 
Uh, and, you know, we're seeing death and destruction everywhere. I mean, there's not a single uh, family in Ukraine that hasn't been affected by this conflict in a negative way. And uh, so I, I think perceptions have changed over the last eight, nine years. But um, for me, that was kind of eye-opening in the in the very beginning when I got there. So you're saying at the, at, at the early stages that a lot of folks were, what, sympathetic to Russia? Am I hearing that right, Andrew? Yeah, well, I mean, especially in the East uh, and even more so in Crimea, which is heavily uh, ethnically Russian, and there wasn't a lot of loyalty to Kiev uh, early, you know, uh, years ago in Kiev. But in the East, you know, very much mixed. Um, you know, there were people who, you know, were kind of apolitical in a lot of ways, and they, they, they paid more attention to Russian media, Russian news, Russian uh, you know, movies, things like that, and didn't really have a lot of loyalty in Kiev, and they, they weren't necessarily in favor of the instability that, that, that came after the Maidan revolution. And, and so, yeah, they bought into Putin's propaganda that you know, Ukraine brought this upon themselves. There, there, hmm. there is a segment of the population in the East that do think that way, yes. But you're it, saying that thinking has changed now in the last year since the invasion. Yeah, for a lot of people. I mean, my 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 in-laws, I, I I would say, are are good examples. You know, for me personally, I mean, they, they weren't necessarily you know gung ho rah rah you know go Ukraine, but but now that's that's changed significantly. My my mother-in-law wraps up most phone calls with me with with a a hearty glory to Ukraine. So, hmm. um, and and she's a classic example of of people from that region. You know, I'm just wondering, uh, you know, Volodymyr, how, how you're handling sort of the pressure, the uncertainty about what's going on half a world away. You obviously have friends, family, I assume, in Ukraine. This must be weighing on you in a very dramatic way. It's exhausting. I'm sure. I'm sure. Both of my, my family and my wife's family, they're, they're in Ukraine still. So we have daily conversations about what's going on, how they deal with the conflict. I mean, to the... How are they dealing with the conflict? Well, I think uh, the the realization has settled in that this is not going to be a uh, you know quick win or there's not going to be a quick end to this at any point, right? So they have to adjust through their new ways of life, right? So they, whenever you know, uh, whenever the bomb threats is sounds, they have to find above shelters. You know, they have to go figure out how to get to school safely, right? How to you know how to move on with work. You know, if you work in in a kind of in an area where you know your electricity goes out every once in a while, you have to adjust your work work hours and things of that nature, right? So, Ukrainian people are very strong, you know, and strong willed. So they kind of find in a way to live their life in in this very difficult circumstance. What you're describing is that every hour of their days uh, is being affected by what's happening there. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They have to, you know, they have to persevere and, you know, they've, they've adapted to say, well, now, you know, I have to buy you know, generators. I have to buy, you know, battery packs and because, my, you know, you know when the electricity comes out, right? So, you you know, things of things that you take for granted, such as, you know, your, you know, hygiene, other things, right? You know, the hot water, right? Some, something that we kind of sort of used to at any, you know, have us available to us every day. You know, it's not, it's not a common, it's not a common good anymore, right? So it's a, it's a the, the availability can be scarce and can be you know disappear at any given time. So people have to prepare for that. Has your family considered coming here? They have. Uh, I have my sister. Uh, she moved to well, not to United States, unfortunately, because they have some some conditions that prevent them from coming here, medical conditions, because they're, most of my family are all a little older, right? So they they can't really you know travel uh-huh. by air. So that's mm-hmm. uh, that's a very unfortunate. But I do have family members that moved to Europe and they're currently reside in Europe for, and they're probably going to be there for quite quite some time. But mostly that's you know, like I said, my sister was her kids and a few other family members. They have little children, so they kind of moved them away from the conflict zone. 
and they've gone to Europe. You're that saying that is correct. How has that transition gone for them? It's very difficult I because bet. Uh, at the at the beginning of the onset of the conflict, uh, Europe provided a lot of financial support, some other things. A lot of those programs have have been rescinded since then, so they have to you know. You have to learn a language, compete in the job market, you know, do some other things that, you know, kind of get your kids to school. So that's something that, they, again, they haven't used to, but they're kind of getting, getting, getting used to it now in a, in a very rapid succession. Uh, to what extent were they welcomed uh, where they are? They were welcome, and they still are well welcome. So Europe is very, you know, very accepting, as you've probably seen by Biden's speeches and, you know, kind of welcoming committees that he experienced. Uh, Europe is, you know, Ukraine is very close to a lot of the countries that there are. So that conflict right. for them is real. You know, we are a little bit farther away. So for a lot of people in Kansas City, even, you know, they really, you know, they don't have any kind of, you know, extended relationship to Ukraine. So no for connection. Them, yeah. Exactly. So mm -hmm. they see it on TV and that's pretty much once you shut the TV off, you know, that's the extent of that relationship, right? In Europe, that is not the case, right? So those people that move to Ukraine, to, to Europe, they live right now, like in their communities. They have to, you know, kind of get on with life. They don't know what the, what the, what, what the future holds for them. So they have to, you know, kind of be integrated in a different way. You know, Andrew, you actually, uh, I think you mentioned you were in Ukraine with your wife and your son last January, right before Russia invaded. Tell me about uh, that and did, did, what kind of tensions were you sensing? Did you anticipate what was about to happen? Yeah, it was it was a strange time. Um, you know, the, the warnings started to come from the White House and, and other world leaders uh, prior to our trip there in January 2022. So this is, you know, a month or so before the invasion. Um, and, you know, all of the family and friends are like, Andrew, you'd be crazy to go there. But, you know, my wife and I, who had lived in the war zone and, and dealt with these threats from Russia for years and years, and we've become numb to them, we just thought there's no way this is going to happen. No way. So we took our toddler son there because wow. we wanted to, to meet his his grandparents for the first time and visit, you know, mother's home country and, and so on and so forth. And and uh, we were there for about three weeks. And then all of a sudden, you know, um, you know, troop movements scaled up uh, in Ukraine era in Russia and Belarus. And, um, you know, OK, so we relocated back to Kiev so that we could get a quick getaway. So we did cut our trip short a couple of days. But, um, you know, being there, we were in Slavyansk, which is where the war largely started, the first big battles. Uh, and, um, you know, people were just going on with their business. Nobody anticipated this would happen because, again, they've been living with this threat for years and years and years. And they just couldn't imagine how it could possibly happen. I know you were gone when the invasion occurred, but what, what did your friends tell you about what those moments were like when Russia actually began its invasion? I, I mean, it, it was horrifying. I mean, it's 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 the most scared any of us have been in our lives, um, even though we've lived with this. You know, we many of our friends there and family and my wife were there for the first invasion. This this was somehow different uh, because there was so much uncertainty uh, and they were coming. You know, they had the country surrounded and they were coming in from different areas. Uh, you know, we, my wife and I were glued to the TV here. I happened to be in Kentucky at the time for work, but um, we uh, were on the phone with people constantly and we were getting regular updates about, you know, bombs falling left and right from our friends in wow. Kiev and, and, and places like that. And I, it's, it was, it was horrifying. Yeah. Horrifying would be the word that maybe your family members would use to that, load America. That is correct. And, in, and at the early days of war, I mean, the, when putting, I'm, I'm from Kiev originally, right? So it's a, it's a, like Andrew pointed out, when they, you know, escaped the, 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 the front line of the conflict to Kiev. You know, Kiev was always kind of, you know, was always stayed away, was on the other outskirts of this, right? Nobody in Kiev expected any of this would happen, right? And so when the Russian troops started marching towards Kiev and I, you know, everybody saw it on TV and I was literally seeing some of my, 
you know, childhood memories and childhood, you know, oh, the I bet. I bet. things that I visited. And it was like right there. And the, the, the tanks rolling through it was a, kind of like a horrifying moment for me personally. But more importantly, like my family was in danger because they were right there, right, right, right in, a, in the line of the conflict. I think those are feelings that a lot of Kansas Cityans would have a hard time connecting with what it's like to have family in a distant country being under threat in the way your family's been under threat. Absolutely. And I think the, the, feelings, the, the feeling that I couldn't, you know, couldn't describe until that moment was just a helplessness, right? So you're 3,000 miles away and then yeah. all you can do is just hope and pray and, you know, have a phone available to you just to check on that. But there's nothing at this time, you know, at that moment you could do without just, 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 just looking at TV and hoping that everything's going to work out. Well, again, uh, the website for uh, Stand with Ukraine KC is ukrainekc.org. That's where you can go to get more information. And again, two events this weekend, Friday at the World War I Museum, um, a reception at 5 o'clock, a panel at 6, a benefit for Stand with Ukraine KC. And then on Saturday at 4 o'clock, there's a rally at the fountain at the entrance to the Country Club Plaza to commemorate uh, so many folks who have stood up heroically in Ukraine. Again, 4 o'clock Saturday at the fountain to the plaza. I bet you expect a big crowd for that. Yes, we are. Okay, very good. I want to thank uh, Volodymyr Poloshuk, again, president of Stand With Ukraine KC, Andrew Meyer, the organization's program director, and Volodymyr, we're, we're pulling for you and thinking about your family. All the best to you. Thank you. Up to Date is produced by Zach Wilson, Reginald David, Elizabeth Ruiz, Zach Perez, and Hannah Cole. Our intern is Claudia Brancart. Our announcer and engineer is Paul Nakatura. Our theme music is composed and performed by the great Bobby Watson. I'm Steve Kraske. Thanks for listening.